This morning, we are, as Kevin mentioned earlier, uh, excited because we're kind of, we're about to wrap up this series on the book of Revelation focused just on the letters. So that was the intent, was just to focus on those first seven letters, and we were only going to do a few of them. And um, along the way, we decided to, uh, to really uh, wrestle with what, what does it look like for a letter to be written um, these letters were written all to Asia Minor, uh, all to specific churches, and we've looked at three different churches, and then we're going to um, have something for this morning. Yeah, so we're taking a little bit of a, a different approach. Uh, let me begin by this, just to kind of get us all uh, thinking about this idea of letters, of how many people enjoy receiving letters in the mail? Raise your hand. How about this? How many of you don't enjoy receiving letters in the mail? Is there anybody that just doesn't like getting letters? Right? Letters are kind of cool. It's, uh, for our kids, getting the mail every day is a huge deal. Like it's, it's one of the things that our boys kind of fight over, who gets to open the little mailbox and get the mail. They often are, are hoping that a new Lego magazine will be in there, so they're very excited that that could potentially come. Uh, but we enjoy getting letters in the mail. But there are some letters or there's some pieces of mail that carry more weight than others. Some are weighty and some are not. So, for example, other people's mail doesn't really matter. I don't really care. It's their mail. It doesn't really matter to me. It really doesn't carry all that much weight for my life. In advertisement, you get all these coupons, something like that, or uh, maybe an update letter from somebody that you're not all that close with, or a postcard from a friend in Hawaii. It might be interesting, but it doesn't really carry all that much weight. But there are some pieces of mail that carry a lot of weight, right? College students, you can uh, probably identify with this one. School acceptance letters. Remember when you sent out your applications and then you're waiting for that letter to come back and you knew if the little letter came, probably wasn't that good news. You knew if it was a big packet that there was all sorts of information in, it was probably pretty good news, right? Other things that carry weight. How about a, a letter from a family member? Sometimes you get those letters that you're not really expecting from a family member, a, a father or a sister or mother. Somebody writes you a letter and you open it and the words in it are uh, profound, meaningful, those types of things carry a lot of weight. Or might be a letter from a doctor. Recently had some sort of a procedure or a scan done, and you're waiting for that letter to give you the results. So there are some pieces of mail, there are some things that come into our lives that carry a lot of weight. But as Kevin said, the, the truth is, if it's someone else's mail, it doesn't carry nearly as much weight as if it's our own, right? Um, when we get our own mail and we begin to look at some of those weightier pieces of mail, it resonates with us in a completely different way. And so when Kevin and I first started talking about this series about reading these letters that were written to the church and then beginning to ask the question, how do those relate to us? One of the things I remember saying early on in the conversation is, man, it's just too bad that there wasn't like just a letter written to New Community. Like, how cool would that be if you're, like, flipping through and then you get this letter and you go, oh, this is a letter specifically directed to this group of people at this time. Um, and we thought, man, it's too bad that that isn't the case, but that would be awesome. It would be really cool if it followed the same kind of pattern that you see in each of the uh, letters in the book of Revelation. And then we decided, well, why not do it? And so we decided we would write our own letter to New Community. Now, before you brand us as, like, um, being... Uh, heretics and trying to write scripture on our own. We're we're uh, we're pretty convinced our uh, our letter probably won't even make the apocrypha. But regardless of that, 
Uh, regardless of that, the idea is that we want to follow the same pattern as the book of Revelation, and we want to give a few warnings, some charges or encouragements, some statements to the church, and then uh, an affirmation at the end. And this morning, our, our intent is just to cover uh, the warnings. Next week, Janine will speak and uh, give us pictures about God, and then the following week, we will uh, be able to uh, kind of wrap up this open letter to new community. So this is what this is this morning, an open letter to new community. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, as we uh, look at some different warnings this morning that you would be speaking to us, uh, we ask that you would give us the ability to have honest and vulnerable reflection on ourselves and in our own community. Lord, may we be humble uh, as we hear from your scripture. Lord, may we be movable. Pray that uh, we would be open to your movement, uh, that we would be open uh, to the things that you have for us, to the desires that you have for us individually and as a community uh, that maybe, maybe we're not chasing after right now. So challenge us this morning, Lord. Get in our face this morning. Open our eyes. God, we pray that your, uh, your spirit would move in a powerful way. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, let me give a quick definition of warnings, because this morning we're going to look at three different warnings. Warnings uh, we are uh, looking at as their characteristics that we believe we're actually presently good at, But if we do not continue to give them attention, it may result in the Spirit coming to us as a church and saying, wake up. Wake up. So these warnings that we're talking about are going to be things that we're actually, Russ and I would assess and say, man, our community is decent at this. This is something that we're good at. However, if not given the right attention, the Spirit could begin to speak to us and say, wake up to these things. So we have three warnings, three ideas that as a community we believe we need to constantly be aware of. Three things that Russ and I believe could be disastrous to this church if we allow them to take hold. The the first idea is uh, this truth, that we have to continue to keep it. And the truth is this, that you are powerful. Friday night, I was uh, mentioned on Urban Plunge. I was at a cup of cool water. It was around midnight. And I walked into the girls' bathroom. You wonder why the girls' bathroom, because I was about to clean it. Okay? <laughs> so I was going in to clean the girls' bathroom. It's about midnight. Uh, I start scrubbing the sinks down. And I look up, and on the mirror, there's this sheet of paper that listed one of my favorite quotes. And on the sheet of paper, it said this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and famous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your plain small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that people won't feel insecure around you. You were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. Read that line with me. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in all of us. And when we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. 
At the start of this year, you've probably noticed in some of the letters that we have shared that there's this theme of us in some ways reminding the church that there is a particular status we have with God, right? That when we have um, entered into a relationship with God, we're known as a child of God. We're perceived by God as being powerful, as being loved, as being gifted, as being uh, his very own son and daughter. And with that come many, many beautiful responsibilities, right? First uh, Peter describes it, or Second Peter describes it this way. It'll be on the screen. His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness to goodness, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, Godliness into godliness, mutual affection into mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What the text says so clearly, and we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking it down, is that we have already everything we need for life and godliness. That we have everything we need. That it's all been entrusted to us. Not, not some, not a partial amount, not just a little bit, not hopefully I'll get that last little bit before I come to completeness, but everything we need for life and godliness. I think two ideas there, or a godly life is uh, one translation has it, but life and godliness is the idea that everything we need to live into who we've been called to be, and then everything we need to live into holiness. It's the divine life. It's this kingdom life we talk about, and it is a life that is found in Christ. Do you ever find it funny sometimes? Maybe, maybe I'm the only one that finds this funny, but as a community, we'll often sit here or, or stand up here, and there will be a need that's presented. Maybe it's somebody's personal need, or, or it might be even a, a budgetary need for the church. And we all go to pray, and we pray that God would fill that need that God would meet, meet that need somehow, would provide the resources, would provide the people to meet those needs. What's funny about that, and without trying to sound too brash this morning, is the money is already here. The people are already here. God has already provided the need. It's just an issue of are we willing to deep, dig into our pockets and give the money? Is there somebody that's sitting here this morning that's willing to step up and fill the need? It's just an issue of are we willing to give it? Because the need has already been provided. You see, we have everything that we need in this room to live that life of godliness. We have everything that we need in this room to change Spokane. Do you actually believe that? That in this room we have everything we need to change the city. All the gifting and all the talent to impact the city, all the energy, all the passion to invest, all the money needed to support everything we could dream of sits in this room. With God and with each other, this community has everything that it needs. That's a beautiful and a scary idea all at the same time. That uh, there is a collective power and energy 
to live out all those little dreams that we talked about earlier, those things that you're thinking about, that we could live into the reality of those. But I believe one of the truths that probably keeps us from becoming all that God has called us to be is simply an inability to accept who God believes us to be, right? Whether that's like a difficulty accepting it, an unwillingness to accept it, but I think we have to remind each other on a regular basis that first and foremost we've been created in the image of God, that we bear his likeness. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing idea, that we've been infused with gifts and talents that the way he shaped and created you is exactly the way he intended you to be. And that beyond that, that when we're in this relationship with Christ, that we are known as sons and daughters of the king, that we've been empowered by the spirit, that we get to live into all that he believes about who we are. And I want to encourage you, new community, if we want to continue to dream to be the church that I think we're dreaming to be, then we have to continue in all of these things, like seven values and being other-centered and being humble and following Christ and, and being a church that makes disciples and that's always on the go, all of those things, we want them to be reality, but they will only be reality if we live into the belief that we are loved and that we are powerful. And so that first idea, you are powerful because of Christ. Therefore, don't lose sight of that. Second idea is uh, virtual community. Virtual community. This is, again, a warning. We, we believe we have community, but we don't want to just drift into virtual community. Every year at the start of the year, it just becomes natural for me to want to live into new goals for the year to kind of reflect back on last year and see what have I done well, what have I not done well, how could I improve. And uh, just because of the nature of who I am, and some of you will resonate with this, I look back and I see the things that went really well over the year and I go great and I just immediately kind of forget them because they're going well. I ignore it and I move on and I just focus on all the things that I'm doing pretty crappy at. Like these are all the things that I would really love to change and that need to change that I kind of feel like, oh, maybe this year they'll change, right? And I, all the other great things, I just kind of go, well, yeah, that's great and moving on, right? And... I think sometimes it's crucial for us to maybe dwell a little bit longer on the things that are going really well. And so I would say that at New Community right now, I have sensed and we have sensed a really strong sense of community. That if you look back over the last year, that, that we would highlight that as maybe one of the strengths. Now community is one of those kind of uh, Western Christian culture buzzwords right now. That uh, everybody wants community, everyone wants to talk about community. I mean, thankfully, when we named ourselves New Community 23 years ago, we were like a little bit ahead of the curve, right? But the idea is that we want to continue to live into that idea. That we are one body in Christ, that together we love and know and lean into that value. That uh, we would say that that value is best expressed in groups. We want groups to be healthy. We, we emphasize that groups have to be uh, expressing care for one another, provision for one another, walking with each other through deep stuff and through fun stuff, right? And uh, that's what we believe we've seen over this last year. So here's a, a quick disclaimer, though, because I think many of us feel that way. We feel uh, the health of the community in this place. But there are many of you sitting here this morning that probably don't feel that sense of community. 
I've talked to many of you. You've been here for a year or, or just two months or maybe six years, and you still feel like, man, I don't know if I'm connected to this place. I don't feel that sense of community that everybody else seems to talk about. So you have to remember, we have to remember that community is a growing dynamic. What I mean by that is this. You're going to get out of it what you put into it. And isn't that truth in every area of life? That you're going to get out of it what you put into it. That if you're willing to work for something, or if you're unwilling to work for something, then you're probably not going to get that very thing that you're not working towards, right? It just makes logical sense. If you want to be in great shape, but you're unwilling to put the hard work in to get into good shape, it's probably not just going to happen magically. And so Russ and I say this stuff often, that community takes a long time to build. It takes work to build that community into our lives. So somebody that's been here for six months, we would look at them and say, well, you probably have about six months worth of community. Somebody that's been here for a year and has really invested their time and has vested energy in getting to know people and being involved in different ways and trying out small groups and getting to know families and uh, volunteering and all those different things, those people are probably going to have a year or more worth of community because they've vested that time, because they've worked hard for that time. Community is a growing dynamic. You have to be willing to put your life into it in order to get life out of it. So not only is community a growing dynamic, I would also say that Southern Day gatherings are not what we're talking about. So sometimes we equate gathering here with equaling community. And we would say that's uh, pretty far from reality. The best definition for us would be sharing life together. The best way to know whether you're in community is if you ask the question, are you sharing life with someone else, you can point to the people at which you're sharing life with. Our hope would be that you're, every one of us in the room is sharing life in a group context. We believe that church best expresses itself in group contexts. Now that doesn't necessarily mean, and we've said this thousands of times, we'll continue to say it, doesn't necessarily mean that that's always a new community group that's in the bulletin listed on the back that you can sign up for and go to. It might mean that you're in a group that you've been meeting with regularly for the last three years and it's been in this accountability group and it is life-giving. That's group. It could be that you're investing in other groups and you're um, sharing life in a way where it's not about you, but it's about others, where you're known, where you can wrestle with your faith, where you can sharpen each other and pray for each other. Those things kind of begin to demonstrate what it means to do life together. And I think togetherness is one of our strengths, but if we equate it with uh, just Sunday morning, we'll, we'll come up short, and it will quickly turn into a weakness. If you don't know if you have real community or just virtual community, let me give you a definition. Virtual community is a shell of the real thing. It's an imitation. It's a cheap knockoff. Now, it may look like the real thing from the outside, but it is not the real thing. Virtual community is being surrounded by people, but never fully opening your life to them. I think it's actually very possible, I've seen this happen in my own life, very possible to be in a group, to have friends, to be involved in all sorts of church things, and still only have virtual community. You'll recognize this when you begin to feel separated. When you feel lonely, 
when you feel isolated. Now, I think there are kind of three primary ways that this comes about. And the first one is this. There's a lack of honesty. It's when we hide our truest self amidst the community that's around us. It's when we're unwilling to share life as it really is. This is how you can get somebody sitting in a group for two years and never hear about their addiction. Never hear that they've been struggling with depression their entire life. Never hear about the issues that are arising in their family. Never understand their greatest fears. Because there's a lack of honesty. A lack of being your truest self around others. I believe this is the greatest enemy of community. Is that lack of honesty, a lack of personal vulnerability. So Kevin mentions the lack of honesty. I'm going to give you two others that I think fit into why we can drift into virtual community. One of those is an unwillingness to ask for help. I find myself in this position quite often, and it's a position where you want to maintain uh, maybe a position of strength, and you realize that in asking for help, uh, what it feels like you're doing is actually highlighting a weakness. You begin to uh, have to rely on others. You begin to say, I have a need. Uh, It kind of fits in closely with this lack of honesty. I mean, if I have to be honest with you, there are profound weaknesses in my life, and those weaknesses need assistance. And so I can either be willing to admit that and then ask for help, or I can begin to go, no, I'm just going to try to figure it out on my own. And so often... I think the default is to try to figure it out on your own. But I would say that figuring it out on your own in many ways is an anti-community posture. To really be about and for each other implies that I'm there with all my strengths and with all I have to offer. But included with that, I'm there with all my weaknesses and all that that brings. And that's good because strengths balance weaknesses and together we're far better off if we're willing to ask for assistance. So community is not just a give only, but it's also a take. It's give and take. It's not just one, not just the other, but it has to be both. Because otherwise you have a virtual community. If I'm only giving to Kevin, give, 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 then we act like everything's great between us, But he's always on the receiving end. I'm always on the giving end. It makes me feel like I'm in a really good place. And maybe him feel like he's not in such a good place, right? But instead, if it's this mutual thing, we begin to actually reinforce what community looks like. To be able to give, I think Brooke mentioned it, uh, to give from a position of weakness rather than a position of strength. Most of the time we give to other people. Most of the time uh, we go into a situation, it's taking from our extra And handing it to someone without. And the truth is, can we be the kind of person that in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our without, we still have the freedom and openness to give? If those kinds of things happen, I think it continues to foster a dynamic of community. Last one is uh, we quit fighting for those not in community. We can spin into virtual community if we quit fighting for those that are not in community. What I mean by that, there's two natural reactions that I tend to have when people either express this angst with being not in community. Um, I tend to have one of two reactions. I either will uh, feel like I've got my needs covered, 
So sorry, I hope you can figure it out for yourself because I'm feeling pretty good. I feel like I got community. I feel like things are where I want them to be. Sorry it's not working for you. Uh, hopefully you can find it. Okay. Another extreme would be that uh, I get tired maybe of hearing that you don't have community but then you seemingly doing nothing about it. Right? Maybe we fall into that posture where we go, man, I would love to help you but you've got to help yourself. Like there has to be a mutual give and take. And the idea behind each of these is that we have to fight for community in our own lives, right? But fight for it in others, to extend hospitality, to include. It's kind of in some ways like having a kid. When, I first, when we first had Carson, um, I mean, I thought there was no way I could love anyone like I loved Carson until Jack came along. And, like, leading up to Jack, I'm like, man, I'm a little nervous about Jack because, like, I'm probably there's, I mean, there's no way anybody's going to steal my heart for this girl. There's no way. And then all of a sudden, it was like I grew a second heart or something. Like, something happened, right? And I think that's the way it is with community, that when you actually are willing to say, okay, I feel like I have enough people in my world. I feel like I have enough community. I feel that when you open that door, what begins to happen is that your heart actually enlarges. Your community and your capacity for it enlarges. Uh, not always the, the, uh, the intimate, deep relationships, but your ability to care for and love a group of people just extends over time, right? And I think uh, we need to continue to be the kind of people that invest in community. Hmm. If you did grow a second heart, you should get that checked. I should. Yeah, it's weird. bad. Um, all right, our third and final warning. We're going to end with this one. And really, this one uh, for us um, is maybe the foundational one. And from this, these other two things come about or happen. The third and final warning. And re- again, remember that each of these warnings, Russ and I believe that uh, our community is actually doing well, but could become sidetracked and begin to miss the mark if we don't talk about these things, if we don't remind ourselves of these things. Let me begin with a question, and this is the question. What is Sodom and Gomorrah synonymous with? What do we think about when I say uh, those two words? Somebody answer. Destruction. Destruction, what else? Sin, Sin, what else? Be bold. Homosexuality, thank you. <laughs> Only one person <laughs> wanted to say that out loud. Yeah, I think we think of uh, this idea of homosexuality because the story uh, is in uh, some part about this. So our third and final warning is the warning of laziness. So I think we look at this story and we associate it with acts of homosexuality, but what if this story is about more than just acts of homosexuality? What if this story uh, could maybe serve as a warning for us all? Turn to uh, Genesis 18 if you want to. I'm going to give a little context. I'm going to walk through this story just so we all know what's going on. Genesis 18. Three men come uh, to Abraham and Sarah. Most commentators believe that these uh, were actually angels uh, that were um, appearing as men. After staying with Abraham and Sarah, the Lord reveals to Abraham that he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin was very grievous. Adam cries out to the Lord, spare the city. They kind of argue back and forth in this really interesting argument of uh, if there are so many people righteous in the city, will you save the city then? And uh, so Abraham and and, and, uh, God have this very interesting argument about this. But ultimately, 
God says that the city will be destroyed. So shortly after, two angels go to Sodom, and they're shown hospitality by Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. All right, we're tracking? This is what Genesis 19, 4 through 5 now says. But before they lay down, these are the two men that are being shown hospitality by Lot. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That we may know them is a uh, a biblical term to say essentially that we may have sex with them. So Lot pleads with the men against their wicked ways and instead offers his two virgin daughters. But the men proceed. The mob was struck with blindness at this moment. The angels help usher his family out of the city, saying that this city will indeed be destroyed. And the angels instruct the family to flee and not look back while destruction is taking place. Lot pleads to go to a different city. They agree. God comes in at this moment and rains down sulfur and fire on the city. Lot's wife looks back. She turns into a pillar of salt. Totally normal stuff in the Old Testament. Just track with me here. The rest of the family makes it out. And that's the end of the story. So here's what's interesting with the story. is People who know Bible stories, I think we talk about the sins of Sodom, and we automatically go to that place of homosexuality. That was the issue that was there. It's the crux of the story. We think of the angry and wicked mob trying to have sex with these uh, angels. We know that God destroys the entire city for their sin and wickedness. God destroyed Sodom because of homosexuality, right? That's where our mind goes. But I don't think it's that easy. The book of Ezekiel says this. God speaking says, As I live, declares the Lord God, your your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. What they did before the Lord was wicked, but I believe that their sin was pride an excess of food, and prosperous ease. You could say it this way. It was arrogance. They were overfed, and they were unconcerned. The detestable sin to God was not necessarily just their homosexual desires. It was their arrogance. It was their consumption. It was their selfishness. This is what I would refer to as laziness. So when I say lazy, I think oftentimes this invokes an image of a husband sitting on a couch while a wife runs around and managing everything in the house, the kids and the meals and all that kind of stuff. How many people get that image in their head when I say lazy? Nobody. Great. Wow. Great. Wow. Thank you. This is going really well. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Russ and I tried to think of an image uh, of a woman sitting on a couch and the man running around What's managing the whole house. We couldn't come up with no. one. So. No. But this idea of lazy is uh, when somebody sits while someone else is working, That's arrogance. To be idle is a function of overconsumption. To be unresponsive comes from a lack of concern. This is laziness. This was the people of Sodom. They had become lazy in their devotion, and so they began to turn to wicked ways. 
So we say, beware of becoming lazy. This, I believe, is a warning we all need to hear. See, it's easy to get focused on those big sins. The things in our culture or our experience or our doctrine or our personal convictions all say are wrong. Stealing and murder and adultery. I think we can all look at those things and generally agree that, yeah, those are sins. We don't want to do those. And I think many of us work very, very hard at successfully staying away from being murderers and adulterers and liars and cheats and stealers. Yet, it's pride and gluttony and laziness that are really detestable to God. Kevin is alluding to this idea that we sometimes get caught up with the idea that it's the big sins that really matter, and all the little things don't matter as much. But perhaps it's the seemingly insignificant, smaller, quote-unquote, sins that actually are most disastrous. It's our disregard for those around us or our selfishness. The fact that we're like inwardly always consumed with how am I in the situation and how is my life and have I had my needs met rather than beginning to lift our eyes and to look to others around us. Maybe it's um, that group or community only happens when it's convenient. I mean, that posture is really one of saying, well, then it's about me because it's about whether it's convenient for me, whether I feel like it on that given time or night rather than the idea that when I go, that it's actually about everyone else. That when you show up here on a Sunday morning, is isn't about what happens with you, it's really about what happens with those around you. And that the trickle effect, the, the rub-off, then is life change for you as well, right? Or maybe it's just an unwillingness to be a person who can admit wrong. And I find that that could be a challenging thing at times, to say, you know, actually... That's on me. Maybe that actually hurts our faith even more than some of these bigger sins. Maybe it's actually not being connected to the vine. There's this passage in the scriptures where we're described as being connected to the branch. Right? That Jesus is the vine, that we are the branches, and that we are connected to this life source. And Maybe some of us just aren't really tapping into that. That our time in the Word, the time in prayer, the time relating with God is very low. And we feel like we don't have that spiritual energy, and it's because we don't. We're not bearing fruit. Why? Because we're not maybe connected to the vine. Maybe it's just an undisciplined lifestyle. You get the idea. But spiritual laziness probably in many ways is the soil from which all of these things grow. The book of James, James chapter 1 it says, be doers of the word and not mere, merely hearers only, right? For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. But the perfect man that looks intently, right, is the one who sees the area of need and begins to live into it, to change it. Otherwise, the scriptures say what we're simply doing is deceiving ourselves. We're feeling as if things are the way they're intended to be, but that, that laziness, that lethargy moves us to a place where we're okay with second best. We're okay with average. And I don't think that uh, if we're the kind of people that are called to be powerful and live into the gifts that we have, that we can just settle for second. Someone that is lazy is someone that knows what needs to be done but chooses not to do it due to their own comfort 
or lack of initiative. I think James is saying that it's easy to hear the words, it's easy to know the answers, it's easy even, or it's even easy to give the right answers, but it's very hard to be a doer. Without the doing, I believe your spirituality is lazy. When we merely hear and do not do, we become arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. It's because we're lazy. At no point should your faith be complacent or should you be comfortable. I think our faith is vibrant. It should always be moving and evolving and changing and challenging. The very essence of faith is trusting something beyond yourself, something that you can't fully understand, something that's out of your control. Faith is meant to be vibrant. It should be a catalyst for change and continual transformation in our lives. And when it ceases to be these things, I believe we need to look inward and begin to question, have I become lazy in the way that I am approaching my spirituality? Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25 about a man going on a journey. Before he leaves, he gives three different servants sums of money. Two of the servants take the money and through trade are able to double the money that they were given in the first place. The third man digs a hole, drops the money in it, and then just waits for the return of the man. The man is pleased with the initiative and work of the first two servants and because he gives them more responsibility. To the third, he is disappointed because that servant was lazy. Just dug a hole, dropped the money in, and waited. It was laziness. Like the parable of the talents, I believe we have all been given something while the king is away and that we are expected to work with what we have been given to advance the kingdom. So I ask you, I ask myself this, what are you doing, what am I doing with what I have been given? Are you using it? Am I using it? Or have I become lazy? Finding out it's just easier to bury what I've been given to ensure that it won't be tarnished and harmed. Let me conclude with this. In giving three warnings this morning, we have to be honest and say that we have seen these things in different times. But, again, we believe overall our community is operating out of health in these areas. However, we'd be remiss if we did not believe that some of us are not struggling in one or more of these areas. That some of us need to be reminded that we are indeed powerful. That some are comfortable in our own virtual communities too afraid to find real community, that some of us have been lazy in our spirituality. And I promise you that our community will struggle to grow if we cannot recognize these deficiencies and help each other move beyond them. These are warnings because they will stymie our personal growth as individuals and that they could potentially sideline the effectiveness of new community in our city if we allow them to take hold. So this week, uh, and the following week, before we come back up here and, and really finish this talk, we want you to discuss these things in your groups. Have honest dialogue about these warnings. Where do you see these in yourself? Where do you see these in your group? Where do you see these in our community? Have honest dialogue. Be willing to look inward and say, am I lazy? Have I settled for virtual community? And if so, if you see these deficiencies then pray for them and help one another climb out of that hole. In two weeks, we'll finish 
uh, our open letter to new community will conclude with several charges, things that we believe new community needs to remember, not to miss as we continue to move forward as a community. One of our hopes is that while you're in those conversations in small group talking about areas that we need to continue to refine, that um, you, along with us, dream about what are those things that new community has to do to keep continuing to be as a people, all of us individually, uh, who God has called us to be. Uh, So some charges. That's what we're going to look at uh, in two weeks. Next week uh, will be Janine on uh, Super Sunday. Super Sunday. All right. Um, So let's do this to close. Would you uh, stand with me? We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. Um, The Lord's Prayer is not just a prayer of rote memorization. It's not just a prayer that we've said uh, maybe thousands of times, but rather uh, there are deep and powerful meanings and truths. We are asking that God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth. And that's, that's what we want to pray. Uh, this weekend, as we we're on Urban Plunge, uh, each time we would gather with a particular ministry or people, or we'd be out on the street, and we would, uh, we would gather around in a circle, and we'd actually hold hands. And so I'm going to invite you just across the aisles to join hands with everybody so that we're all kind of interconnected. And together we will uh, we'll pray this in one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.